Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room and the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that one home. The reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his Bible, uh, his word, the scriptures, whatever word you want to give to it. Uh, we believe that he uses that for the purposes of his glory and for our good. And the, the chief way that he uses it is to teach us about himself. All right, and so that's the primary means by which he's given us to know him. And so if you don't know him, you find him, learn of him, grow in understanding of him by chasing after him through the scriptures. And so if you don't have one of the, a Bible of your very own, take that one home and start reading it. And we'll count that as a win. First um, Samuel chapter... Eight. So uh, we are rolling along through uh, all year long. We've been uh, looking at a series that we're calling the story of God. Uh, and the premise is incredibly simple. We believe that the entire Bible is about Jesus. And I think most people would say, oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, obviously. But I think if you press people on it, I think most people say, okay, the, the New Testament is about Jesus. Because I mean, like it starts off with his birth and, and we see his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And then everybody's talking about him after that. And so, yeah, yeah we get the New Testament. And then, and then there's this section of the Old Testament at the end uh, that's, that's like these messianic prophecies of a, of a Messiah to come. And, and so I think everybody gets on board really fast with saying that's about Jesus. Right? But we believe the entire Bible is about Jesus. Like the whole thing, like, like even stories about Boaz marrying the child sacrificing foreigner. Like that story is about Jesus. And, and stories about Abraham being a bad husband and selling his wife into slavery a couple of times to save his own rear end. That story is ultimately about Jesus. And Jesus' name is never mentioned in those stories. But if we read those stories correctly, we walk away with a very distinct impression that Jesus was in control of every bit of it. And he was orchestrating every bit of it for the purposes of his gospel and his story. But it's one thing for the guy with the face mic on the stage to make that claim. It's another thing to show our work. So we've been taking a walk through the major characters of the Old Testament and asking the question, how does their story tell us, about the, tell us about the much larger and much more beautiful story of God? How does their story point us to Jesus' story? All right? uh, but here's the deal. That, that question can feel daunting. It can feel too big. And so we've taken up the practice of breaking it into four smaller questions. And those, those of you who have been here all year know what those questions are by now, right? How is this person raised up? What made this person a seemingly bad choice? What's number three? Oh, y'all are so bad at this. This is why I've got to repeat it every week. What did God do to redeem them? How does their story preach the gospel? If we answer those four questions successfully, we answer them faithfully, I think we position ourselves in such a way that we are actually, it's actually really easy to answer our big, massive story of God question. If we answer these four questions faithfully about our character each week, then we put ourselves in such a place that the story of God question is actually quite simple to answer. All right? So who's our character today? David. King David does, peons. King David. But let's round out his profile. King 2.0, a very, very public sinner, and the teacher's pet. Y'all ready to jump into it this morning? All right, question number one. How was David raised up? First Samuel chapter 8. Let's get into it. When Samuel became old. Time out. So who in the world is Samuel? Like we haven't talked about Samuel, right? He's got two books of the Bible named after him. He seems important, but we just kind of skipped right over him. So I told you at the beginning of our time, uh, uh, 
a, almost a year ago now, when we started the series, I guess it was right after Easter, that there were going to be a lot of characters who were worthy of our time and worthy of our attention that we just didn't have the time to look at or else we'd be in this series forever. Samuel is exactly that guy. He was so close to making the cut, his name is actually on the banner outside. All right? But he didn't make the cut. But he's totally worth your time and attention. It should also be noted that I misspelled his name, and Garrett didn't catch my misspelling, so his name is misspelled on the banner. So... That's the way we roll around here. All right, so now Samuel's an incredibly unique guy in the story of God. And if this series were going to go two years instead of one year, we would totally be looking at Samuel. All right, so who is Samuel? Like, like what do we need to know about him for our purposes this morning? Well, Samuel's a kind of God-given middleman. He's like an, an in-between in these two major sections of Old Testament history. Samuel, Samuel is the last judge. Uh, it's, that's a group of people that we've been talking about a lot in here over the last several months, right? The judges were these, these king general type figures that God raised up uh, during this incredibly long drought of a season. Right? Three to four hundred year cycle of God's people falling into the sin and the, the practices of the neighboring nations that shouldn't be there. Becoming enslaved by that sin, becoming enslaved by the people presenting it, and then having to be rescued out by a guy that God raised up called a judge. Samuel is the last of the judges, but he's also a priest. He's the first prophet that we think of by Old Testament standards. And so he kind of falls in, fills all these different roles at once. He's a really cool guy. You should go read his story later, but today we're skipping him. But be thinking this morning, era of the judges. What's the tone here? Everybody's exhausted. Everybody's ready to be done with this wash, rinse, repeat system that they've got of having some freedom, falling victim of sin and slavery, and having to be rescued out. Everybody's ready for a breath of fresh, fresh air. And so even though Samuel's a classy guy and he led well, in chapter 8 we read this. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Verse 2. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So even though he tried to make them judges, that backfires big time. Verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when, he, when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Verse 8, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they, also, so they are also excuse me, doing to you. Verse 9, now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and equipments for his chariots. 
Verse 13, and he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. Verse 17, he will take a tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard, had heard all these words of the people, he repeated them to the ears, or in the ears of the Lord. Verse 22. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. There was a, young, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Aphiah, I think, and a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had two sons. And he had a son, excuse me, whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So Israel wants a king. All right. Like they're getting pretty tired of this, this whole judge set up and they look around and everybody else has got a king, so they want a king too. Because being like all the other nations around them has gone so well for them in the past. Right? They look around, everybody else has got a king. Hey, we want a king too. He can judge us, he can fight our battles for us. We want a king. We want to be like everybody else. Give us a king. Now up to this point in the history of Israel, who's been in charge? Like he's raised up judges. And before that, he had generals and mouthpieces in Joshua and Moses. But who's been there through it all? God's the one who's been in charge. This is a true theocracy we're talking about here, right? God has been king. God is the one that handed down judgment. God is the one who ruled over them. God is the one who told them what to do. He appointed leaders and raised up leaders, but God is the one who said, go here, go there. God has been king. Which means the demand for a human king is simultaneously a rejection of God's kingship. That's exactly what God says. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. They're not, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. And so Samuel brings their request to God, and God says, give them what they want. Hear me, church. That may be one of the scariest and most tragic things God can ever say. I mean, think about that. God says, okay, you don't want me? Give them the alternative to me. What's the alternative? Something less than him, right? Something less awesome than him and, and faithful than him and trustworthy than him and just than him. In every possible way, in every measurable way, the alternative to God himself being the king is a step down in every category you can think of. And God says, hey, they don't want me? Give them what they want. Give them a king. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Tell Samuel to give them a king, but first to warn them of what a human king will bring about. King is going to take all your stuff for himself and for his kingdom, right? They've had to deal with this before. Hello, taxes. <laughs> They've never had to deal with this. Since the days of Egypt, they, they had like, some stuff collected for the tabernacle as an act of worship, 
They didn't have to maintain a king here. They didn't have to maintain the structures and systems of a kingdom and the pleasures and privileges of a king. Now, it's not mentioned in this text, but there's some stuff going on outside of Israel during this time that directly plays into this. Most notably, the Philistines, a neighboring nation, are growing in, growing in power. They're becoming a big deal on the world stage, and they're right next door to Israel. And, and so when you're about to be in the middle of a war, what kind of leader do you want for yourself? You want a warrior, right? And so right out of the gate in chapter 9, we learn about a guy named Saul. And Saul is special for no other reason but because he's all swole. He's taller than everybody else. He's more handsome than everybody else. Uh, if you read the rest of chapter 9, you learn he's pretty skilled in battle. Saul's a winner. And in the world of ancient politics, winners are what you go for, right? So they make Saul the king. They make Saul the king. The only problem, though, is that Saul is a train wreck in God's eyes. Like, absolute train wreck. He, con he continually does the opposite of what God commands him to do. Over and over and over again, if you read his story, Saul is always doing the opposite of what God commanded him to do. He makes promises he shouldn't make. He goes into battles that he shouldn't go into. One time, uh, they're getting ready to fight the Philistines, and, and their custom was to make a sacrifice to God, an animal sacrifice in that moment, to elicit God's favor in the battle. All right? uh, but here's the deal about the sacrifice. Kings aren't allowed to make the sacrifice. The priest makes the sacrifice. And so Samuel, the priest, isn't there to make the sacrifice, and Saul's growing impatient. And so he decides he's going to do it himself. Now, just logical question here. If the entire point of the sacrifice was to elicit God's favor for the battle, how do you think he feels about intentionally obey or disobeying his commands for how the sacrifice ought to be done? It's a problem. And the text tells us in that story that is immediately after he makes his sacrifice, Samuel finally gets to the scene and is like, what have you done? And Samuel tells him in that moment, tells him in that moment that the kingdom is going to be removed from him and God's going to raise up another. Samuel tells Saul that God is going to remove him from the throne and give his kingdom to another man. God will raise up another king, but this time, well, this time God's going to take the opportunity to show them what he looks for in a king rather than what they would look for in a king. And so now we finally get to start talking about David, right? 1 Samuel chapter 16. In chapter 16, we read this in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? I guess there's time out here. Uh, word has gotten out that Samuel and Saul have a little beef, right? And so the elders of the town come to Samuel when they see him entering into Bethlehem. And is like, hey, are you here to start a fight? So what does Samuel say? Verse 5. 
He said, peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6, and when they came, he, took, uh, he looked on Eliab, excuse me, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 9, and then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he was keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Verse 12, and he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes, and and he was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Okay, so God sends Samuel to anoint one of of Jesse's sons to anoint David himself. He sends Samuel to Bethlehem to anoint David to be the next king, right? A couple of things to point out about this. One, this is the same Bethlehem as we've talked about a few weeks ago, right? With the story of Ruth and Boaz. That story starts in Bethlehem. It's got all this weird stuff going on in the middle, and it's got, it ends at Bethlehem, right? And so uh, the, Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse, and we learn here that Jesse is the father of David. Which means that God has been working on this for a while now, hasn't he? A few generations, actually. You think God is shocked by the way these events have turned out? Not in the least, right? Not, not at all, actually. In fact, it seems like he's orchestrating them. It seems like God is in control of every second of this doesn't he we can say it this way god is playing the long game here he wasn't he wasn't surprised by the the arising of saul to the throne he wasn't surprised by their request to come and and seek out a king for themselves or that saul was the one that was chosen he wasn't surprised that saul was a train wreck in fact it seems like he's putting these pieces together for a purpose i wonder if he's big enough and smart enough to do that maybe Second thing to point out is that Samuel doesn't know that it's going to be David. He's just told that it's one of Jesse's sons, right? He's also told what to look for. He tells him to look for specific things. And so Jesse struts his seven eldest boys out in front of Samuel, and Samuel keeps going, nope, not him. Next, don't you have another one? To which, to which Jesse replies, well, we got David out in the field, but I didn't think you were talking about him. Like, we figured, we figured that he could, we put him on sheep duty today because we didn't figure you needed him here. To which Samuel immediately understands what's going on here and says, bring him here now. We ain't doing a thing until he gets here. We're not even sitting down. Bring the boy here. Samuel anoints David right there, but now it's time to play the waiting game. Because even though David has been anointed to be the next king, Saul still sits on the throne. God hasn't removed him from the throne yet. In fact, it's going to be about 20 years 
before David finally sits on the united throne of Israel. It takes him about 13 years to sit on the throne of Judah, and then it takes him another seven years after that to get the throne of Israel. David's got to hang out for a while. He's got to wait patiently upon God to finally give him the kingdom. And to, to read the story, and there's a lot of it, right? to read the story between this point in, da- in the time period of David and the point where he actually finally sits on the throne as the only king of Israel, is to, to see one story after the next of David's incredible character and the sovereign hand of God at work. take an hour or two to read it all by ourselves, but let alone explain it. So let me just give you some highlights here. God, out of the blue, moves David into King Saul's house, into his court to be a musician for him. Saul is having trouble sleeping over and over again, and so they're like, hey, we know this kid who can handle a harp pretty well, and then all of a sudden, David's in the courtroom of the king. All right? And so he just kind of moves David into Saul's court. David becomes best friend with Saul's son, Jonathan. David becomes a general in Saul's army and becomes one of the greatest military leaders that Israel ever saw. In fact, his exploits as a military leader are some of the coolest parts of the Bible. Go read them. Right? David marries one of Saul's daughters. David was like a second son to Saul. David spends the later years of his growing up in the house of Saul. This, they're not two random guys not throwing barbs at each other from a distance. David spends a ton of time in Saul's house. And as David's notoriety grew and his, his star was on the rise, Saul got jealous and repeatedly tried to kill him. Hi, Dad. <laughs> like, what would you do if your best friend's dad always tried to kill you? <laughs> but through it all, David refused to do anything to harm Saul and instead patiently waited for God to remove him from the throne. Classy, classy move on David's part. Over and over again, you hear him say things, I will not put my hand on the Lord's anointed. Even though David had opportunities and was a better soldier, better warrior than Saul, he could have done something about it. In fact, there's more than a couple of stories where David is close enough to kill Saul and he does something to prove to Saul that he was there and could have done it and he doesn't. Over and over again, David trusts God's timing, understanding that when God's ready to remove Saul from the throne, he's, it, it, that'll be the time to do it. Until then, he's to wait. And so if, if, if David is God's choice for the throne, and if he's always doing these really classy, upstanding things, what made him a seemingly bad choice? Like what, are the, what are the flags that we should look at here? And David is basically a pick-your-own-adventure story of junk. Like one sin after the next. The Bible's the most honest book ever, and it makes zero attempt to hide David's shortcomings and character flaws. Anybody else's for that matter. And David's junk is on full display here. Like in all seriousness, if, if you don't know what David's sins are, then I can correctly assume that you've never read that part of the Bible correctly. Let me, let me uh, give you the most famous example in Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is the one that everybody knows about. 2 Samuel chapter 11, look at verse 1. In the spring of the year, David's already king by this point. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Okay, so call time out here. Um, Right out of the gate, we learn that David's not where he's supposed to be. 
Kings are supposed to go with their armies to battle in this culture, right? David's supposed to be out with the army fighting in all the places the army's fighting. But instead, we learn that he's bored and at home getting in trouble. Let's see how this ends for him. Verse Two, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, or one of his servants said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So uh, call time out there actually too. Two things to point out here. Uh, David's servant tries to get him out of this. Like, you mean that one? Uriah's wife? You mean that one, Bathsheba? That's the one you're pointing at right now? Second thing that you need to to understand here is that those of you who know David's story better understand that that Uriah is not a name that's unfamiliar. Uriah is one of David's mighty men. Which means there's a personal element to here. We're not talking about two random people on two random rooftops. David knows this guy's husband, or this, this girl's husband. He fought with him in battle, a small collection of warrior men that David attracted to himself during his military days. David lived with these guys, worked with these guys, uh, spent life with these guys. He knows Uriah well. Uriah's off fighting in the battle. His wife is at home, and David goes, bring her to me. Bring her to me. So David, verse 4 David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. David sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant by this action, and now David starts looking for a way to hide this, right? Look at verse 6. And so David sent word to Joab. Joab is his chief general. Send me Uriah the Hittite from the front line. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. It's like a type of tent. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are campaigning, or excuse me, are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. All right, so time out again. David sends, uh, has Uriah sent home from the front line and he makes this big show, throws a party and asks Uriah how things are going on the front line. How's Joab doing? How's the battle going? In the hopes that when he sends Uriah home from the party, he'll go home and spend time with his wife and cover his tracks. But Uriah does this really classy thing here. Instead of going home, he refuses to take advantage of a privilege that the rest of his men can't take advantage of. And so he sleeps on the porch. Like, you want to look for leadership stuff? That, there you go. Uriah refuses to go home. Look at verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So time out again. David throws another party, and this time he pulls out the good wine. 
This time he pulls out the good wine. He gets Uriah drunk, still hoping that Uriah won't know any better and his, his integrity will be shot there. And so Uriah will go home. And again, Uriah won't go home. And so David now has to push this thing even harder. His plan has not worked. And so now he's, now he's desperate. And so in verse 14 we read this. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of his servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. And then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messengers, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, what did you Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? And then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. Okay, so David sends instructions to, back with Uriah to the general that Uriah is supposed to be placed in a part of the battle where he is sure to die. Lo and behold, that's exactly what happens. Joab follows David's instructions. Uriah is dead. Word is sent back to David all right, of how it happened. And the messenger is given the explicit instructions of when the king gets angry about why we got so near the wall... Tell him, oh yeah, by the way, Uriah died in battle. So in verse 23, the messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. The archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So the conversation goes exactly as planned. The messenger tells David about Uriah. And instead of, Uriah, instead of David critiquing the bad military strategy of getting so close to the wall, David sloughs it off and says, You win some, you lose some. Don't you worry. Go back and be encouraged. You tell that general mind to get back in there and go for it. That ought to get you absolutely furious at David. But just in case you haven't gotten all the way there yet, look at verse 26. David's gotten what he's wanted, Uriah is dead. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. David invites the poor soldier's lonely widow into his own home to be another wife for him. And even though the math is really fuzzy by now, he claims that kid is his own. Everything's all right. He was able to cover all the bases. Everything's been hidden away. Except for the fact that God watched every bit of this play out. And so the very next 
line of the story says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was a prophet during David's day. The Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Verse 4, Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, four times over, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Verse 7, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. And for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. David sinned greatly before the Lord. I'll give you the rap sheet real quick. Bathsheba is raped. Uriah is murdered. Other men in the army die in a bad battle. David's other wives are sinned against. God's people watched their king act in the most ungodly of ways. Anybody want to try to go toe-to-toe with David's junk today? Anybody want to try to one-up him this morning? You'd lose. But even though David's sins individually are terrible, even though all of his crimes piled on top of each other are as heinous as we can possibly imagine this morning, David still understands that his greatest sin is against God himself. It doesn't mean that those aren't issues, but his greatest sin is against God himself, the one who placed him in the position he's in right now. The one who he grossly misrepresented through that leadership. The one who called him to himself and the one David spurned to chase after lesser lovers and lesser acclaim and lesser pleasures and satisfaction. David sinned against the Lord and God outs him publicly. This little conversation, this little parable that Nathan tells, that's not happening in a little back room somewhere in the castle. This would have been an official audience in the courtroom of the king. At the very least, there's a few people on the payroll walking around. In all likelihood, there are 
dozens of people who watched every second of this conversation play out. You think that all that gossip is staying in just that room? It doesn't take long before the whole kingdom is going to know about exactly what David has done. God out David publicly. David recognizes his sin and he immediately repents publicly. But that doesn't mean that everything just goes back to being normal after that. In fact, there are actually some incredibly painful consequences to David's sin. And I'll just be honest with you. This story and a thousand others like it is one of the reasons that like, you'll very rarely catch me, find, catch me watching a Christian movie. Some of you already know this about me personality-wise. Some of you don't. I can't stand Christian movies. And We can talk about whether they're well done or not later. My problem is the story arc. My problem is the trajectory of how the story goes because the story always seems to play out the same way. You got this person who's walking in sin and they're making a mess of their life and then somebody shares the gospel with them but they don't want to hear it right then and so they get to this kind of rock bottom moment where everything's falling apart and they finally believe and then you watch the last seven and a half to eight minutes of the movie everything magically putting the pieces back together because they repented. That's the trajectory, the story arc of most Christian movies. The problem is you're not going to find that story anywhere in the Bible. It's not the way God tends to work. David immediately repents here. Like, like they didn't even finish the conversation. David goes, you're right, what have I done? David immediately repents in a public, in a public way. There's more to come later. But he immediately repents. But God was serious when he said, the sword will not depart from your house. The sword will not depart from your house. And to read David's story from this moment in his life on is to be heartbroken over and over again with one tragic scene after the next. If you don't know David's story, let me give you the 90-second Stephen Woodard version. Not only is this child stillborn, but over a period of 11 years, one of his sons, Amnon, tricks and rapes one of his daughters, Tamar. And David does absolutely nothing about it for two whole years. Dad of the Year Award, right? So another one of his sons, Absalom, gets really frustrated that his father isn't doing anything about it. And so he tricks David into letting him and Amnon go off to work on a little project together. And he kills Amnon and then runs away. David doesn't do anything about that either. And so his general, Joab, tricks David into giving an edict that sends the military to go capture Absalom and bring him home. But when they finally bring him back, David refuses to even talk to Absalom. He doesn't want to see him. And so Absalom decides to burn Joab's field because the law required that if he was convicted of a crime, he'd have to stand before the king to hear his sentence. And so he'd have to stand before the king to to be punished. That meeting goes exactly as poorly as you think it would. And so Absalom stands outside the city gate and starts telling people just how bad a job his daddy is doing and that when he'll be king he's going to fix everything so what does that lead to he raises the city up against david and starts a coup david and his followers have to flee from jerusalem for a little while and after absalom gets tired of publicly committing debauchery against his father's wives and property he decides to go after david himself because you know killing david makes the whole coup thing stick and instead absalom dies in battle in a very weird and tragic way he's riding on a horse and gets his hair caught in a tree branch And he's just hanging there when somebody comes and kills him. David is restored to his throne. But he doesn't exactly want to get to work right after that. Because, you know, his family's kind of a mess. 
And so the ones who remained loyal to him throughout this whole ordeal start thinking that he doesn't care about them, which makes it next to impossible for David to lead well for the rest of his life. David's life is a train wreck, guys. Like, anybody want David's life? I I mean, are are there good things that we could point to? Absolutely. But these things are always in the background. These things are always playing out for the rest of his life. God told David that the sword was never going to depart from his house, and he meant it, church. He meant it. So if you're paying attention at all, you've got to be asking the question by now, how does God redeem David? Right? How does God redeem David? Or for those of you who know your Bible well, how in the world could David be described as a man after God's own heart? Like, how does David get that title? Why does God seem to dote on and celebrate David more than any other character in the Old Testament? If that's David's background, if that's David's everyday life, if that's the thing that his sin has produced, the gravity of his sin has absolutely jacked up his life, if that's David's life, how in the world does God get to the place where he celebrates David? His sin is public. His sin is egregious. His sin hurts himself. It hurts his family. It hurts the kingdom of people he was called to lead. How in the world does God redeem David? And the answer, the answer is that in David's finer moments, God lets David see who the real king is. God lets David see who the real king is. Let me show you what I mean. Join me in Psalm 51. We're going to read the whole thing. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. David writes these words. Some of your translations will have a little thing that says, to the choir master, when David went into Bathsheba, and Nathan the prophet. David writes this psalm, a song of worship, shortly after he is called out on his sin, is convicted of sin, and repents of his sin. In Psalm 51, verse 1, he says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. When you get to a place where you can say that, honestly, you'll be somewhere. 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David knew probably better than anyone else around him, that everything he attained, everything he built up for himself, everything he accumulated, the nation that that rose under his power was not because of his strength or his intelligence or his ingenuity, his creativity. It was nothing in him. David knew probably better than anything, anyone else in the kingdom that everything God had built up around him was because David humbled himself and God blessed. And David knew way better than anybody else around him That when he lost sight of that humility, when he strayed from that humility, sure, he may have still won the battle and he still still may have attained the riches, but he lost what was ultimately valuable to him. The presence of God in his life. The nearness of his Savior and King. Yes, church, David's sin was great and it had tragic effects, but it also constantly drove him like a hound dog. He had to chase after the face of his Lord. Deeper and deeper, it caused him to seek after. Drove him over and over again to a broken and contrite heart before God. And David saw just how small he was in the face of of an eternal king. It floored him. It left him undone. And this segues into our fourth question for the morning. How does David's story preach God's gospel? How does David's story preach God's gospel? The first way is that Psalm 51 is vertical, not horizontal. Vertical as in between him and God. Horizontal as in between him and others. Psalm 51 is vertical, not horizontal. David's sin is public. It is outed publicly. His repentance and restitution happens publicly. But public repentance is not the most important thing that David did. He goes straight to God. Against you and you only have I sinned, he says. So allow me to take a moment to hopefully clear up something that I think a lot of non-Christians and folks on the fringe of churches grossly misunderstand about the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I talk about, the, talk about sin and the need for repentance around here, I am never, ever, hear me church, ever talking about you prettying yourselves up or cleaning up the outsides of you or, the, or your actions so that I or anybody else around here thinks you got all your junk together. Ever. That's not what, at all what I'm talking about. I'm always talking about the condition of your heart that leads to those actions. I'm talking about a bent buried deep down inside of you that's opposed to God and opposed to his lordship, his kingship over every molecule of your existence. I'm talking about a a, a bent that fleshes itself out with self-serving attempts to make a name for ourselves or gather trinkets to amuse us. Does that mean that the, the actions don't matter? No, of course they do. But they are symptoms of a much deeper disease. Core level disease passed all the way down to us from Adam in the garden that sees God as the enemy of our greatest good and the enemy of our deepest joy and the enemy of our best future instead of the good giver of those things. It's a disease that leads us to falsely believe that we could actually do better than him. How stupid are we? I'm guilty. 
So when we call people to repentance in here, just like David, it's not a call to make amends. It's a call to, to get out of yourself. It's a call to be broken and contrite before God. It's a call to get over yourself and instead trust He who is and will be and forever will be the only one worthy of your allegiance. It's a call to trust who He is and what He's done for you through Jesus on the cross. God doesn't want your bull. He doesn't want your sacrifice. Is there anything in this world you could give him that doesn't already belong to him? He doesn't want your bull. He wants you to see him correctly and see yourself correctly and respond accordingly. That's what he's after. David's story may play out several hundred years before Jesus finally steps on the scene. Uh, David doesn't know yet how the Messiah is going to make all things right. But hear me, church. David understands more about the gospel than we often are guilty of. Psalm 51 is vertical, not horizontal. The outworkings of a sinful heart are an issue, but they're less of an issue than his posture before God himself. David sees that and goes directly to God to solve the problem. There's a second way that David's story preaches the gospel. And I think that's most clearly taught in 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. It may take you a little bit to get there. I've got it right here. Verse 10. This is the end of David's life. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. That's a nickname for Bethlehem. And in verse 11, in the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of, his, of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Okay, what do we do with that? If you were to ask any practicing Jew from the days of David on, they would point to David as the king they always they could go back to. It's the golden era the gilded era in the nation of Israel. They adored David and all wished that the kings coming after him were a little bit more like him. David was their boy. It was the time when Israel walked around with their chest puffed out. To, to go back to the days of David in the mind of the Israelites was to go back to the golden era. And in 1 Kings chapter 2, the greatest king Israel ever had it's three verses and the story moves on. Actually, it's not even three verses. Verse 10 talks about his death. Verse 11 is a little one-verse eulogy. And then verse 12 talks about how his son steps onto the throne. The greatest king in the history of Israel gets a one-verse eulogy. Because the greatest king in the history of Israel is still not the star of the story. The greatest king in the history of Israel is not the star of the story. David's story isn't ultimately about David, is it? And regardless of whether or not you think that David was a good king or a bad king or kind of a mediocre king, the result is still the same. He was only ever a sinful, temporary king. 
He was only ever a sinful, temporary king. Whether you think he was gilded or not, the guild wears off and eventually fades away. He has a shelf life. Israel demanded a king, but the kings they kept getting were never what they needed them to be. Now, were they? Israel needed a king who wouldn't be bogged down by his own personal sin. David failed that in every way, didn't he? Israel needed a king who would bring peace rather than war. Nope. Israel needed a king who wouldn't die and leave his throne for someone else to sit on. Fails again. Israel needed a king with a capital K. Israel needed a king with a capital K, which means we've put in the work this morning to answer our big question, haven't we? Our overarching theme for this series is that God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus. And today we learn that God raised up David to be a shadow of a far more perfect David, an eternal David, the best king Israel is ever going to get in Jesus. God raised up the greatest king Israel ever knew, and he did so in order to show that he alone was capable of being the one they gave their allegiance to. He raised up Israel's greatest king, the golden age for the nation of Israel, for the entire purpose of showing them that earthly kings will never work. That earthly kings will never work, that they're always weak and they're always futile, and their kingdoms always fall. They cannot last. They will not last. He did it all to set the stage for the true king. The king of kings and the lord of lords. This is the story of God. So how do we respond to God's word today? Like if if you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God, right? You do that by pressing into his word. Go, Go read the story of David. It covers a lot of ground. But listen, every word of it is given to you so that you may know God. It might be worth your time. Chase after him there. Go dig in deep and feast. We can take another step. Maybe David's story sounds a lot like yours sometimes. Maybe you've got some incredibly heinous sin in your life, and it's hurt you, and it's hurt your family, and it's hurt all kinds of people that you're called to lead. Maybe it's hurt people you don't even know about. David's in the same boat, man. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that there's no earthly consequences for your sin. I can't make that promise. I don't think the Bible makes that promise. In fact, it seems to be the exact opposite. But I can make this promise. That while your sin is heinous, I'm willing to put money down that it's less egregious than David's. And if David can repent before the Lord, and if God can celebrate that repentance and put away his sin, if God can do that to David, your junk ain't a problem for him. You're not too far gone. Not even close. If if God can get to a place where he loves and celebrates David for his repentance despite David's atrocious sins in his life, it messed up everything. If God can get there for David, do you think he's capable of doing the same for you? Absolutely he is. Today's a good day to repent and press into the God who loves you and wants you, not your bull. Forget about the sacrifices you can give him. They ain't good enough. He wants you. 
If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. Listen, you can respond to God's word too. You do that by meeting the one that this story is all about. You do that by meeting Jesus. You meet Jesus by repenting of your sin and coming to him as Savior and Lord. Believe he's who he says he is. Believe he's done what he says he's done. Jesus lived the sinless life that you and I aren't capable of living. He died his death on the cross as a substitute for you and I. Pay the payment for the sins that we owe. And he offers himself and his grace to all those who call upon his name. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of folks up front here to talk. If that's you, you want to know more about that, come talk to me. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the story of David. Even I have hope now. Despite what you gave him, he was capable of messing it all up. But he wasn't capable of straying too far from you. God, call us back to yourself. Help us see who the real king is. Call us to repentance before you. God, my sin is ever before me, and in sin did my mother conceive me. But you are good. And when we come to you in repentance and faith, you put away our sin. And you give us yourself. And God, what you call us is the end of the debate. I may never earn the name a man after God's own heart outside of me. But if you call me yours, I'm okay. God, work in us this morning. Lead us to repentance. Spur us on to the works you've called us to do. Draw people to yourself today. Save people. Your name is Brent. Amen.